Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. All right, Kim Kardashian backfires on being anti-gun. Now, this month in celebrity news, as we've all heard, Kim Kardashian West was robbed at gunpoint while staying in a private hotel in Paris. Now, the well-known celebrity that's famous for just being famous was held against her will by multiple unknown individuals dressed as police and was robbed of millions of in jewels. Now, she's voiced her opinions on gun laws many times before, advocating for more gun control on Twitter after a few mass shootings. Now, but this is old news now. What's recently come to the surface of this story is Kim's response to the crime. Did she... Donate money to every town. No. Did she order all her security to stop carrying weapons? Nope. Did she thank Paris for its wonderful gun control laws? Heck no. She beefed up her security. She's adding former Secret Service agents to her security detail and getting more security for the whole family. So I guess regardless of what her Twitter feed says, even Kim Kardashian believes that more guns equals less crime. Good afternoon, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Let's praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Now, hundreds of police departments in two states were found to have broken laws mandating police reports for in-custody deaths. Registries required by California and Texans were missing a total of 660 deaths from 2005 to 2015. Now, there are the only two states that require law enforcement to report all in-custody deaths, but it seems enforcing the law is a little trickier than anyone imagined. Now, Texas was found to have failed to report 220 use of force fatil- uh, fatalities, and California had about 440 unreported deaths from 2005 to 2015. Now, both Texas and California attorney generals confirmed that many hundreds of cases were missing. While failing to file such a report is a misdemeanor in Texas, there is no punishment for it in California. Now, in total, about 180 police agencies in California failed to file reports on civilian deaths. 
And Texas had about 139 agencies that did not file use of force or in custody deaths. Also, another report states that almost 7,000 individuals in Texas died while in prison or police custody from 2005 to 2015, and nearly 2,000 of whom had not been convicted of a crime, according to a new report. Now, Latinos died of justifiable homicides at higher rates. And 70% of those individuals died of natural causes, 11% committed suicide, and 8% died in a justifiable homicide. Another 8% died from from either drugs and alcohol, accidental injury, or other reasons. 68% of the individuals died while in prison. 16% died while being arrested, and another 16% died in a county or city jail. Now, whites accounted for 42% of the deaths in custody, African-Americans accounted for 30%, and Latinos for 28%. Non-natural deaths among whites tended to be due to suicide, which accounted for 50% of non-natural deaths for both white men and white women. The story was different for black and Latino men. However, among those groups, justifiable homicide accounted for 30 and 34% of non-natural deaths, respectively. So each time a person in Texas dies while in jail, prison, or police custody, the death must be reported to the Texas Attorney General's office. One of the highest-profile Texas cases of deaths in police custody was that of Sandra Bland, a 28-year-old black woman. She was pulled over for a minor traffic violation, and Texas State Trooper Brian Encina threatened to drag Bland out of her car and light her up with a taser if she didn't exit her vehicle. Now, after Encina took her into custody at the Waller County Jail, Bland was found hanging from her cell ceiling by a noose made from a trash bag. Her death was ruled a suicide, and Texas allowed an independent panel to scrutinize the jail and its implementation of policies. The review found that the jail, but it had inadequate policies addressing mental health, and noted that officers dehumanize inmates. So another individual actually set up Google Alerts to determine officers involving shootings. Now, the first study was conducted by Dr. Scott W. Bowman uh, with a co-author of Jordan Taylor. Is that correct? Yes, and Howard Williams, Dr. Howard Williams. And they found the missing reports by comparing the registries of reported fatalities to media reports and police press releases. And Dr. Williams acknowledges that there are a multitude of reasons for the discrepancies in reporting. But the lack of enforcement in California, he says, comes down to clerical errors. So let me welcome to the show Dr. Scott Bowman. Dr. Bowman, welcome to Come and Talk. Thank you very much. Outstanding. So, Dr. Bowman, tell me a little bit about uh, where did you start your education? Uh, I started my education at Arizona State University. I was a Sun Devil. Sun Devil undergraduate, Sun Devil graduate. Uh, did undergrad in uh, psychology and did my master's and doctorate in a program called Justice Studies. So, a uh, little bit of sociology, a little bit of social justice, a uh, little bit of criminal justice, and uh, you know, swirled all together, and and uh, that's how I ended up at Texas State. Nice. Okay. And uh, how did you guys come about uh, doing this study? Uh, well, actually, it was Dr. Williams that really started out um, collecting the data and looking at the data. His 
uh, dissertation. Uh, he was actually a, a doctoral student in our program uh, and the former chief of police in San Marcos. Oh, and okay. so his dissertation was looking at the use of tasers. Uh, and one of the things that he kind of noted um, coming out of the dissertation and kind of transitioning into his own interests uh, was that a lot of the data uh, wasn't collected, wasn't necessarily collected well, um, and was limited in you know the scope and the amount of information provided. And so he actually started collecting and looking at data uh, surrounding uh, specifically police officer deaths. That's his background, uh, and the fact that um, you know there really was limited information about it. Uh, the the fact that there were a, a significant number of people that just simply weren't reported on uh, was was more of a revelation than it was anything else. Now, are these <clears throat> are these necessarily about police shootings uh, or just we're just talking in custody deaths or uh, just a little both? The well, the 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 paper that we wrote um, that that came out in the Houston Chronicle, uh, that paper was specifically about police officer deaths, uh, police officer deaths, uh, custodial deaths. The information is there. I mean, it's it's public record, and um, there's a website. Uh, that the Texas Justice Initiative just launched a few months ago uh, where you can go and see uh, police deaths, jail deaths, and prison deaths, uh, and it gives you some information. Um, one of the limitations is that you know, the information that police departments have to provide to the Attorney General, uh, General's office is limited. Okay, and the FBI director uh, said that you know, really there's no way, you know, there's not enough data collection, so there's really no way for him to figure out you know what the actual numbers are and i know one gentleman actually he actually did set up google alerts mm -hmm. you know starting in 2005 to determine you know pretty much you know what's going on as far as police shootings and all of that that well, that's really crazy well when and when dr williams started collecting the um the information uh he was doing essentially the same thing it was google alerts it was checking uh newspapers uh and so what would happen is he would you know find a uh, police officer shooting you know story and then he would match the information or the location or the person's name when available to the attorney general's database and it just simply wasn't there they didn't match up and so um that's how you know, that's how it was collected. And, and, you know, one very important note to the research that, you know, has been presented is that the kind of baseline was looking at media reports of police officer shootings and comparing it to the information that was missing from the attorney general's office. If the media didn't cover it, um, then there's a possibility that there are even more individuals that were shot and killed by police that there's no media account and there's no police account or no attorney general account. Um, that's certainly possible as well. So there may be additional shootings that just simply were not recorded. So this number could actually be kind of low or the numbers could be low because, like you said, some of them not covered by the media. If Absolutely. they're not covered by the media, then, hey, there's no Google alert. Absolutely. And, wow. and especially in a state and, and not that California is hugely, uh, hugely different. But uh, when you think about the state of Texas and, and uh, you know, aside from how large it is, um, how many rural spaces there are where maybe there isn't a news reporter or maybe there's not, you know, maybe you're a small town and it's a small town sheriff and the largest city or county newspaper is, you know, few miles away, a couple dozen miles away, and they don't get wind of it. And so it just kind of happens in a vacuum. Um, I don't, again, I couldn't, I wouldn't even begin to speculate on the frequency of it or how often, you know, how many additional uh, shooting victims there are. Um, but 
you know, but you suffice it to say there are some that are uh, some additional that are missing. Yeah, because uh, things could be happening. We know how the media works. You know, they have a tunnel vision. So something is going on. They're focusing on that particular issue, you know, and something else happens. It just gets missed. Absolutely. Oh, man, that's that is really scary. That's definitely really scary. Okay, so what 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 do we do? What should we do? What should be done? So I want to say at least one quick thing about the the data um, before kind of talking about what we should do. Uh, and I think it's important to note, okay. you know, a lot of times, especially and you, you refer to this in terms of the media, um, the kind of instantaneous reaction is to assume that the police are somehow covering something up or that they're inherently bad or that they're trying to, you know, shorten their numbers or not look as bad or dangerous or whatever. Um, and that's not the case. There, there were um, instances where, particularly those that were um, missing, uh, there were some where it was federal a federal agent of some sort that did the shooting and killing uh, in the state of Texas. Well, they're not a Texas officer. They're not assigned to a Texas department. So uh, technically, you wouldn't you know, you wouldn't have to report. Um, now, whether or not you should report is a different question, but if I'm an FBI agent and I shoot somebody in the state of Texas and it is a process that is supposed to work through the police department, I just kind of leave. And then if you're the chief or whoever's in charge of filing that report, you go, well, I'm not filing it because it wasn't, wasn't my, any of my officers. Um, and there were several instances like that. There were instances where, um, particularly in New Mexico, where you had an agent that crossed um, from New Mexico into Texas and shot and killed somebody and then kind of went back and they said, well, you know, uh, it's not one of my agents. It's not one of my officers. So it's not my responsibility to file the report. Um, some of them were simple clerical errors. Some of them were just simply, um, you know, I, I didn't know I needed to do that. I didn't know that I should have filed. Um, and so, you know, I think that's important to note. Now, there are others that just simply were not, you know, uh, we're not looked at. We're not filed. Um, myself and and a couple of uh, Texas State master students are are looking uh, at, in, into those at more detail. Um, but you know, currently um, this idea that you know you have officers that have um, you know shot and killed and then covered it up, I don't think is an accurate assessment. They they have to report for the most part. They report. Um, and the numbers, as you said in the intro, were spread out over, you know, departments all over the state. So it wasn't, you know, concentrated in, you know, one or two or three uh, major areas. All right. We're talking with Dr. Scott Bowman with Texas State University. We're talking about police in California and Texas who failed to report over 660 officer involved deaths. This is Michael Cargill and you are listening to Come and Talk It. All right. 
So we're talking with Dr. Scott W. Bowman with Texas State University, and we're talking about police in California and Texas who failed to report 660 officer-involved deaths. Our call-in number is 512-643-LIVE. That's 512-643-5483. Come and talk it. All right, so Dr. Bowman, so what you're telling me, what you told me before the break pretty much is that let's say an, an APD officer shows up to the scene. Also, a Travis County Sheriff's officer shows up. One of them ends up shooting a person. Then there's a possibility that it just gets mixed in the fray. Who follows that report? That's the question. <laughs> or, or if they both shoot the person, you know, and so they're so they're both there and they both shoot the, the suspect uh, and they look at each other and they go, ah, it's too bad. You have to file that report. And the other one says, no, wait, no, you shot first. And it may be like an old uh, 80s, you know, cop buddy show wow. he said I shot You know, I unloaded. I shot him every time. And they go, you didn't hit him at all. And, you know, they start arguing. But ultimately, you there is no kind of clear cut you know, assumption, you're supposed to file. Uh, The best case scenario would be a duplicate file, in which case, hopefully the attorney general's office would look and say, hey, this is the same person. Uh, Let's choose one or let's send it back and figure out who, you know, who's going to take responsibility for the shooting. But um, it's not clear cut. In fact, one of the other issues that comes up, uh, or at least came up in some of the the ones that we looked at, um, were off-duty officers. And so if you're an off-duty officer and you shoot and kill someone, you know, the, the underlying assumption as a peace officer is that you are on duty in the moment in which you decide to engage as an officer. Um, but if you shoot and kill someone, you say, well, I was off duty, so I'm just I'm a citizen just like everyone else. Um, those arguably should be counted. Um, you, you, you acted as an officer in a certain, you know, under a certain circumstance, um, you know, maybe short of somebody breaking into your home and you shooting. But if I'm, you know, on sixth street and something happens and I'm an off duty officer and I jump into action, well, now I'm an officer. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of those were viewed as, uh, this person's off duty. So, you know, technically they weren't working. So therefore we don't have to file. I'm guessing. Okay. So what do you do in, in a case where you, let's say we're in Williamson County, where the coroner has to show up, and how does that whole process work? So the the coroner has to come out and and say, okay, instead of the I'm I'm sorry, not the coroner, the justice of the peace, justice of the peace, justice of the peace in Williamson County, not mm-hmm. the coroner, has to show up and say, okay, well now I declare, you know, yes, this person is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, at least for this report, it it has much less weight because. The, the attorney general's report, in essence, includes the name of the officer, um, the, you know, the jurisdiction, the, the who, you know, where do they come from, um, the regarding the, the suspect or the victim, uh, their race, their gender, their age, and then whether or not they had a weapon. Uh, and so, you know, the, the cause of death, um, if the person died at the hands of the officer, it doesn't necessarily matter how, why they died. Um, so if they were shot and then had a heart attack, they would still have to, you know, they were shot by a police officer. Uh, and so that that information would still should still go into the database. Um, but, you know, the, the justice of the peace, uh, that would probably matter more for in custody deaths than policing death. So how the person died in a jail or a prison, um, that would probably be much more relevant to them. Okay, so let me bring into the conversation psychotherapist uh, Tori Bowman, because you said something during the break. You mentioned the hospital, like if something happened in the hospital um, and, and, and explain to me what was that that you said about a hospital? 
Um, basically, I was communicating that um, do we follow the bullet or do we follow the crime? Um, if a suspect enters into an emergency room um, and they were shot by an officer, um, let's say that the wound is not something that is uh, critical at the time of transport, but it becomes something critical after the uh, person enters into the emergency room, then how is that filed? Does that fall under something that is officer involved, that led to a death, that then gets filed and counted as that? Or is that something that then in turn becomes they died from complications due to a gunshot wound? How is that handled? Okay, so Dr. Bowman, how do we handle that? Again, for for police shootings, um, generally it's much more clear cut, although you could certainly be rushed to the hospital and then pass at some point down the line. Um, in custody death, so you're in a jail or a prison, um, making that determination at times can be um, a little bit more complicated because you don't know kind of, you know, what happened leading up to that point. Um, the, the kind of the Sandra Bland being it, that you mentioned before being one of those questions where you go, was it a suicide? Was it something else? Did something happen that led up to this? Um, you know, not suggesting that, that she did or didn't commit suicide, um, but just having that question of exactly what happened, how did it happen and who's making the determination um, in, in an ideal circumstance, the it, it should follow the victim. You know, it, you should if there is a victim um, that is. Uh, dies either in custody or dies at the hands of any police agency within your jurisdiction, that should be the catalyst to file. That's the easiest way to ensure that you're getting 100% um, you know, participation by all departments. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, although Texas obviously has a law, California doesn't, um, I would say that for both of them. If, if you want to ensure that you're getting 100% or even the feds, um, you know, if you want to make sure you're getting 100%, you file every time there's a victim, regardless of who does the shooting and, and the, the narrative of, you know, the, the victim and, and that becoming the primary kind of um, justification or processing of the uh, attorney general database. It, it certainly improves it because, then you, you know, if you know you have a victim, then you have to file. There's no question. Um, but if it's done by the officer or done by the jailer or something like that, then you start saying, well, does that count? Did that really count? Were they in hold? You know, they were in holding versus this, or they were, you know, it's an off-duty officer. Um, I don't know. Well, if there's a victim, you you know, there's a victim. You know that you're supposed to file. That's the easiest adjustment that I would suggest. Okay, so who do we blame for this? Because we need to have some type of accountability here. <laughs> so, because there's a punishment for this mm-hmm. in Texas, mm-hmm. and what's the punishment? Uh, very little. <laughs> Te- well, okay, there, I'm gonna. Just give a slight correction to that. There is a law, but there has not been a punishment. So um, to date, uh, to the best of our kind of, you know, analysis, uh, there's not been a department that has actually been punished for not reporting. Uh, There is a law in the books. It's a class B misdemeanor. um, But to the best of our knowledge, nobody has ever been punished. So um, but I don't hopefully I don't know that it's necessary. And my assumption would be that if you were going to if the attorney general's office was actually going to enforce it, um, chances are it would be for a habitual department that that continuously disregards their responsibility right. um, and probably not for, you know, an accident or a, um, you know, something where, it, you know, oh, we, we we didn't know we were supposed to file that sort of thing. So, right. um, you know, I I don't know that. Uh, by itself that, that, you know, that will ever be punished um, unless you found, again, that some, you know, there was just 
almost like a protest. We're, we're not filing anything sort of thing, and we're going to force you by enforcing this act. But um, I think that, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, a huge issue um, in, or in terms of blame. I think the larger issue is um, why is there this disregard for collecting that data? Um, again, there are two states out of 50 that, you know, actually make it a point, make it a legal obligation to collect the data. Um, there are other states that um, strongly encourage it, I guess. Uh, states like Florida, for example, but it's still optional. So if I'm a police chief and I don't want to file it, uh, or maybe I have one a year and I just don't think about it when it happens, um, then certainly, uh, you know, there's no true obligation to do so. The federal government ha- doesn't have a true obligation to do so. Um, and I think one of the ironies of that, certainly for the layperson and, and certainly for groups um, that, that uh, you know, continually challenge and protest uh, current, you know, kind of the current state of policing, uh, you look and you say you collect arrest records, you collect um, victimization records to a, to a lesser degree. Um, there's supplemental homicide index. There's the uniform crime report. Um, and so all of this data is collected. But then when you say, well, what about the data on you? What about the data on your activity? Um, the assumption is you, you, that you, the response would be, well, there's an equal importance to we're, we're all a part of the same community. There's an equal responsibility to collect that data um, and officers and, and departments uh, and states simply just don't do it. I would imagine that it's going to change in the next few years, especially kind of with the community policing climate. Um, but even as it stands right now, you know, when you look at departments that are saying, how can we have a better relationship? How can we be more transparent? How can we uh, regain the trust of some of the communities? Um, a good start certainly would be to include um, a, a collection of that data and, and make it public. And see, this this goes back to police accountability. So and this is the the big problem that a lot of people are upset about. They're upset that police agencies are actually investigating themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, in that whole process of how that works. Mm-hmm. You know, if there is, um, you know, if there is a, a shooting by one citizen against another citizen, you know, that person will feel the full effects of the law. Uh, but if there's like a shooting by a police officer, and this is a totally different subject, there's a shooting by a police officer, um, then in that situation, you know, the police department actually investigate themselves. And then you have that whole, you know, whole system, you know, it goes to the D.A., you know, and the D.A. actually works with the police officers because officers are officers of the court. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you get into that whole system. You know, we investigate ourselves. We found ourselves with doing no wrongdoing. The D.A. now says, OK, well, I'm not going to bring charges and nothing get, ever gets done. You know, that whole even the court system, the way it's set up, it's actually set up to protect, you know, officers as well. And, you know, not trying to come across as being anti-cop, you know, there just needs to be some type of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that seems to be the problem that some people have. Yeah. All right. So but part of the part of the issue of accountability, really, and you kind of alluded to it, is is the process of the grand jury, the process of a grand jury uh, and, and what the um, prosecutor says or, or what they present in a grand jury um, and, and knowing that it's not publicly known, nor does it ever have to be publicly shared, um, I think is a pretty important issue. Because if I, as a citizen, shot you today, um, I know exactly how the prosecutor would 
present that information to the grand jury. They, it, we don't have a relationship. You know, I don't have a relationship with the with the prosecutor. Um, they're not necessarily going to go to bat for me because of who I am, and you know, certainly not as a lowly you know professor at Texas State. And that DA has a lot of influence they, over the grand jury. Absolutely, and so I can determine what I want to present or what I construct as a fact, a social fact in the case um, to try and either push something forward or try and sway public opinion. Um, and it's not to suggest that it, I, I can't suggest that it happens or it doesn't happen. The issue is no one knows other than DAs that go before, um, you know, that, that go before grand juries, uh, the individuals that serve on grand juries and officers that are, you know, uh, eventually charged at least to the, to the point of being in front of a grand jury. The rest of the public has no idea. Right. Um, and that's not a policing issue. That's a, you know, that's a process issue. Right. So if a state or federal government agency wanted to start doing something, mm-hmm. what is your recommendation for doing so? Well, in, in the paper that um, Dr. Williams and I wrote, one of the conclusions that we kind of came to uh, was, and, and I think it's important uh, to note that the information that's collected by the attorney general's office and is provided by police departments is pretty much the bare minimum of what you could possibly provide to be, um, you know, lar- uh, you know, minutely useful. And so it's the name of the officer, the name of, um, you know, the name of the department, you know, those sorts of things, as I mentioned before, the, the victim's race, gender, et cetera. Um, there's no context. There's no background information. There's no victim statements or anything or not victim. Excuse me. There's no witness statements. And so one of the things that we suggested is that it has to be more comprehensive um, if it's going to be. And, the, you know, the paper was published in a public policy journal. And so the, the argument was, if you want to improve policy, if you want to improve police community interactions, you have to be able to tell a, comp- a comprehensive story. You have to be able to tell the whole narrative. Um we never hear how police officers, um, you know, kind of what they went through, what they thought, how they felt. Um, and part of that, of course, is if I'm going before a grand jury, I'm probably not going to talk a lot. Um, but certainly we never go back after the fact and ask them. You know, we never say, hey, it's been two years since you went through this process. You were, you know, you were, um, you know, the grand jury decided not to indict. Um, I want to talk to you about this because it's important um, not to try and trick you, not to try and do anything else, but to present a more comprehensive narrative. What were you thinking? What was your thought process? Um, You know, that sort of thing. And so if the goal of collecting the data was to improve training, you can't do it because you don't collect enough information. There's nothing that can be used in that data to improve um, training of officers. If you wanted to improve community interactions with the police, there's nothing in that data that offers any sort of improvement for the community. Um, if you you know, if you have officers that are saying this happened, that happened, I'm more likely to shoot when this happens or this action takes place. Um, that may be information that's useful to, you know, collective communities, but if they're not getting it, then it's, it's, it's useless. And so if you're collecting data for the sake of collecting data, that's a problem. Um, it's a, it's a big problem. All right, we're talking with Dr. Scott Bowman with Texas State University, and we're talking about agencies, police agencies, uh, failing to report involved uh, police shootings, uh, police-involved deaths, and all of that stuff. But when we come back, we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk about campus carry. We're gonna, we need to find <laughs> out where Dr. Bowman stands on campus carry. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It.
This is Doug DuBois, Jr., Executive Director of the Texas State Rifle Association. You're listening to Michael Cargill and Come and Talk It Radio. Welcome back to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. We're talking all things firearms. Now, here's Michael Cargill. Now it's time for GGN, Global Gun News. Global Gun News, sponsored by Central Texas Gunworks, the largest online gun store in Texas. In the news, a few weeks ago, a woman was able to defend herself and her friend from a disturbing attack. At a Walmart in Pennsylvania, a shoplifter ran out of the store. He sprinted into the parking lot and jumped into the back seat of a vehicle. Now, the vehicle was occupied by two women who were commanded by the thief to drive him to safety. Now, he threatened the driver by saying he had something that would give her HIV. Well, police say it started all started here in the parking lot of Walmart. Police say 45-year-old Michael Ortiz, who was trying to escape after attempting to steal from the store, entered a woman's car. Police say the victim reported Ortiz threatened to give her HIV. So they drove out of the lot and began to make their way down the road. But once they got to a red light, the passenger exited the vehicle and pulled out her concealed handgun. Now, she pointed the gun at the carjacker and told him to exit the vehicle. Now, he got out, but a scuffle ensued, and the gun was fired. Now, then the man ran off. Now, no one was hurt in the struggle, and thankfully, the man was later taken into custody. The attacker, Michael Ortiz, was identified from a security camera as being held on charges of robbery and kidnapping. Now, both women are safe and the carrier is under no legal scrutiny. Great job on her part. And of course, don't ever let a threatening person take you to a separate location, no matter what. Gun shops looted after Matthew. Now, looting from stores is a common danger after natural disasters. Now, political discourse and even after sporting events. In the wake of the hurricane hit in Florida, this past week, a gun shop was robbed of a large portion of its inventory. The theft happened sometime around Thursday night to Sunday morning of last week. Now, it appears that an unknown number of people entered the shop and stole more than 40 guns from the store. They took pistols and semi-automatic rifles. And Florida isn't alone. The South Carolina gun shop, Five Star Guns, is now struggling after having 225 guns stolen from their store. Now, the owner is devastated, as you will hear in this clip. Glass everywhere, guns strode out on the floor that they missed and pick, didn't pick up. Um, poured bleach over everything, just, just made a mess of everything. Not only does Honeycutt believe it must have been planned, he believes the suspects knew exactly what they were coming for. Complete whole wall was ARs and um, assault-style rifles, 30, 40 guns in every case. So about 60% of this store's inventory was stolen during the incident, and the suspects haven't been caught. Now, of course, the owner is highly concerned about the misuse of the guns stolen. Now, over in uh, Harbor Beach, Michigan, Casey Armitage, who works as a crossing guard, was concerned about the students she watches over as they travel to and from school. 
Now, she wanted to protect the students from more than just traffic, so she decided to research the policies of carrying a firearm while on duty. After looking up the laws, it was revealed that while concealed carry is not permitted, the employee handbook has no policy governing open carry. Now, open carry also happens to be the law of the land in Michigan. And if you have a concealed pistol license, like Armitage does, you can open carry in some locations that are normally restricted, such as hospitals, churches, banks, and daycares. Unfortunately, after the loophole was pointed out, the city council quickly scrambled and voted to prohibit open carry while on duty, bringing down the options for city workers to protect themselves to zero. Now, essentially trying to solve for a problem that didn't exist, she's testified in front of city council and was interviewed on a YouTube video by the Firearm Guide channel. My question is, have they increased their security? If they're not going to allow you to protect the children that you cross, have they done anything to increase security? No, nothing would change at all. Just I would be disarmed um, and the rest of the city employees would be disarmed as well. Nobody would have any options to carry at all. And the funny thing also is that they said they are basing this decision on being conservative. Yes, they did. They did. They cited that this was a conservative decision to go ahead with the vote at the time. Um, it's definitely not a conservative Well, decision. no, it's actually very liberal because it's the liberals who base on feelings and what if, what if, what if. You know, it's not a conservative standpoint. As it was pointed out, the city has no plan to increase security. So what's the magic number of violent incidents to ban citizens from carrying guns, but not enough to increase general security? Back here in Texas. Now, the great state of Texas has changed its campus carry laws so that universities were no longer restricted areas for license to carry permit holders. It's one of the few states in the nation that has laws allowing concealed handguns on campus. In 2017, Kansas University will be added to that list. Four years ago, Kansas State Legislature voted to make campus carry legal on university grounds and university buildings. The universities have some room to negotiate restrictions on campus. Now, Kansas U, for example, has submitted a weapons policy that restricts campus carry to areas where proposed adequate security measures are at each entrance. In this case, it would mean every entrance to a gun-free building must be guarded by security guards and have metal detectors. Now, some of the some, of course, still have concerns about campus carry, such as these students. Silly idea. I mean, with the Virginia Tech, that's the whole reason why it caused it. So, I mean, wouldn't there be more killings in the school if they're allowing guns just to protect from other guns? Yeah, you don't like it. I don't think that's a very good idea at all. I do not like it. If one person brings a gun on campus, I don't feel safe. If like over a thousand students are bringing guns on campus, I really don't feel safe. The police chiefs on every university campus in the state of Kansas say they believe it's a bad idea. Too many risks, they say. Right now, all buildings post signs telling the public that guns are not allowed. Unfortunately, these students' personal safety, violence, crime, and legislation is not dictated by feelings. And that is your Global Gun News Report for this week of October 2016. All right, so we're back. We're talking with Dr. Scott Bowman with Texas State University. And let's let's change gears a little bit and let's talk about campus carry. Okay, so campus carry has gone into effect you know, after August the 1st here. 
And University of Texas, you know, they're kind of taking it kind of hard. You know, UT, they just don't like it. Uh, you have students that are you know, deciding to do a dildo protest, you know, in response to campus carry. And matter of fact, we had a news story we did this morning on ESPN where we talked about campus carry, talked about UT football team and how Coach Charlie Strong he doesn't like, uh, well, he doesn't want his players carrying guns at all. He, he doesn't want his players to own guns. And see, that's why I have a problem with it. Okay, there's one thing to say you can't own a gun. There's another thing to say, well, I don't want you to carry, you know, while you're a member of this, you know, football team. That's, that's some, something totally different. So I definitely have a problem with him saying you can't own guns, period. Because, you know, in defense of what if I grew up around guns? You know, I'm an avid hunter. I know gun safety. Um, you know, who is he to say that I should not be able to own or carry a gun, you know, as a coach on a football team? So I don't I don't think he has a right to do that. And then another thing that we discussed on ESPN this morning was the fact that um, the third title six sign is posted at the University of Texas Stadium at the UT Stadium there. So you cannot carry in the stadium. Uh, while that sign is posted. Now, the problem that I have is with the head of security at UT uh, on that news report. He actually said that, well, you can't carry during the game because that's an activity. But he said that you can carry, you know, during practice. And I actually have a problem with that because once that third dollar six sign goes up, you can't carry you know, that sign does not have a time frame on it. You know, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. If the sign is posted, then you cannot carry. So either they're going to put up a sign during the football games and then take it down after the game. That's one thing. But once that sign is up, that sign is up and you cannot carry because that is a class A misdemeanor. And for me, I'm not going to be that test case. <laughs> so so let me let me ask you, Dr. Bowman, you know, what are your thoughts about campus carry at uh, Texas State University? Well, First, each university had the ability to kind of draft their own uh, campus carry, you know, the, the implementation of their campus carry legislation. So they could decide what areas they would designate as safe spaces and um, whether or not they would make campus carry, um, you know, available at certain times for certain events and, and you know, those sorts of kind of uh, nuanced aspects of it. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the, the first and most obvious kind of response to campus carry is that if the person is doing it right, you wouldn't know one way or another. Um, now, whether or not that makes you feel com more comfortable or less comfortable, uh, the reality of it is, is that if I have a classroom full of 200 students uh, and they're those that decide to campus carry or even those that, that prior to campus carry were carrying illegally, I wouldn't know one way or the other unless, you know, God forbid, um, you know, an accidental discharge of a gun or something like or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and so if they're doing it correctly, uh, I wouldn't necessarily know one way or another. Um, but at the end of the day, those that went through the process, whether you believe that it is enough training or it's not enough training, uh, those that went through the, the proper uh, training the proper steps, uh, paid their money, um, you know, and and uh, received their certificate to conceal carry. Um, those aren't the ones that you have to necessarily worry about. Uh, they've done what's necessary to, um, you know, to demonstrate that they are a responsible gun owner. Um, the two groups that I think you'd have to worry about more. One would be the um, those that are 
under the age of 21 and decide to, by definition, carry illegally on campus. Uh, and I, I, you know, I haven't heard this specifically, but I could imagine certainly a scenario, especially in light of things like Title IX issues, uh, where you might give your daughter, a, a, you know, a small handgun and say, hey, you know, there are a lot of people on campus that are that, that will want to do bad things to you. Um, and you're only a freshman, but I, I don't want you to wait until you're 21 to, to protect yourself. Mm. Um and then certainly uh, those that will just take it upon themselves to carry illegally regardless. Um, I think those are the scenarios that you you have to worry about the most. Um, I know we, we talked before, I'm not against campus carry um, simply because of having a gun on campus or not having a gun. Uh, my biggest concern is uh, 21 and 22-year-olds uh, that haven't had enough training more than likely um, to decide and determine whether or not to um, discharge a weapon and and to determine who is the offender and who isn't. Um, I wouldn't want to be a Muslim uh, on a camp uh, on a campus carry university uh, certainly running out of a building or walking into a building after something has happened. Um, being african-american or latino to a lesser degree depending on how you look um i have i I was joking you know before we started i'm uh, a little bit older now but i'm an african-american with dreadlocks and so um you know the implicit biases perceptions things like that might be an issue okay we come back from the break we're going to talk about that this is michael cargill and you are listening to come and talk about Glaze, and I get my global gun news from Michael Cargill on Come and Talk It. We'll be we'll be Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right. All right. So now this is going to be the whirlwind uh, round here. So we're going to go back and forth and... and, and discuss campus carry here. So let me go over to uh, Tori, uh, my psychotherapist. Now, you disagree with uh, Dr. Scott Bowman's account on campus carry. Why is that? Well, I think that the moment that you start saying that because someone is 21 or 22 years old, that they don't have the same knowledge or of the of guns to be in a position to make sound decisions when it comes to campus carry, I think that um, for uh, Mr. Bowman, he has to realize that this is Texas, and uh, we give our kids two kids with two things when they're born, and that is uh, we give them a binky and we uh, take them out and we teach them early on how to use a gun. Um, and so I think that it's kind of a, a big misperception to think that because someone is 21 or 22 years old that that knowledge is not there. Mm. Okay. Huh. I don't question their ability to shoot. I question their ability to make decisions. Mm. Police officers, and we've seen this especially, that's how we started the conversation today to a certain degree. We know that there are officers that have, you know, I saw a gun when I saw a wallet. I saw a gun when I saw that there was nothing. Um, He looked suspicious. He looked, we all use these same social constructions about uh, people of color, poor people, um, people, international folk. And so it's not so much a question of whether or not they can shoot or they can aim or they can, you know, do that, that sort of thing. 
police officers make mistakes. We, we talk about police officers, not always, certainly, but we talk about police officers making mistakes in judgment. Um, and that's with lifetimes of training, certainly, you know, employment training that is ongoing. Um, and so a 21 or 22 year old that has never been in that situation, that has never experienced that. I mean, shooting a gun is one thing. Shooting a gun in war is something completely different. Shooting a gun in a, um, you know, a potential um, active shooter scenario with something different. That's really what I'm talking about. And so when people are pouring out and you want to, you know, pouring out of a building or there are shots being fired in a classroom and you go, I want to help. I'm going to go into the classroom and take the person out. How are they going to determine who that person is without that level of training? And so, so what you're saying, you know, like let's look at the military. So you have people that are 18, 19, 20 years old that go into the military. So we trust them to do that, but you're saying we don't trust them, you know, you know, for their own personal protection while they're here. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, and and I say that because in the expectations of a military person is not the same expectations of a police officer is not the same expect the the so for example kind of what i'm hearing you're saying you're saying the police officer the police officer really this problem is on the police departments they're the ones that maybe need additional training because they're the ones that are having problems with identifying certain things well i'm saying if police officers whose job it is to make those identifications struggle to do it why would I expect a 21 or 22 year old to do it better? Why would I expect a military person to do it better? Um, police officers, uh, you know, SAPD, APD, part of their uh, recruitment process normally provides additional, you know, um, points, benefits towards hire if you have a military background. But they still make them go through the police training and they still make them go through, you know, uh, training for active shooter, training for on, you know, cultural competency, et cetera, because. Those aren't necessarily things that you get in the military. I, get- I like them because they're younger. The younger generation, they're actually they learn. They do what you want them to do. Uh, you can mold them, you know, into that person you want them to be. And, you know, they actually tend to do the right thing. What do you think, uh, Tori? Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Michael, 100 percent. I think that when we start to place these. Uh, caps on things and saying that age or being a cop or not a cop or military and non-military makes you more or less qualified to be able to act in an intense or aggressive situation, we lose a little bit uh, when we start making those assumptions. Um, and I don't think that they're fair to to do that. I think it's wrong. Um, because you can take someone who is 21, 22 years old that um, is able to act um, more uh, alert than someone who's 30, 40, um, have been, you know, seems to be more seasoned. And even if, you know, we're talking about campus carry, and if we're looking at a college campus and we're looking at the age of individuals that are actually on a college campus, um, if we have our younger individuals, 18 to 21, 22, that are on the college campuses and they are carrying, they do have the license to carry. Um, I'm sorry, I think I would probably feel a little bit safer around those individuals if they're, you know, doing everything the right way. I'm not going to sit and say, well, because of your age, um, you're not going to be able to shoot your gun and aim properly. And I mean, I think that's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Personally. Well, one thing in order to be a part of campus care, you have to be over the age of 21. So anybody under the age of 21 is 
is illegally carrying, and they have a firearm, they're illegally carrying their firearm on campus. Okay. Um, and again, it's not to suggest, I mean, even with somebody in the military, it's not to suggest that they're, uh, you know, you could argue that they're probably better trained in weaponry than the average police officer uh, in terms of shooting, in terms of, because that's what they do regularly, not once a quarter or once a, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, but that doesn't necessarily suggest that they have the best judgment in a crisis situation when it comes to things like implicit biases, looking and saying, I thought it was him because he looks like the person that I've been told in the media is the one with the gun. He looks like the person that I've been told is the terrorist. I, he, she looks like the person that I've been told is dangerous. Um, that's my concern for campus carry. Again, it's not whether or not a 21 or 22 year old is responsible for carrying a gun, military or otherwise. Whether or not they're responsible for carrying a gun, that's why I'm not inherently anti-campus carry. If you you know if you're 21, 22, um, you know even just from an age standpoint, there are all sorts of things that we allow socially um, that well before the age of 21 or 22, um, you know. But it, tattoos but and shotgun. I mean, you can get a shotgun at 18. So by itself, it's not. That's not the concern. It's what you do in a crisis situation. We see officers that are supposed to be trained in crisis situations that struggle to produce the best outcome. And so if you're 21 and you've had, you know, the bare minimum training in, in terms of, um, you know, getting a concealed carry license, which doesn't include the type of, um, you know, active shooter training that you would expect to ha be the justification for having a, a gun on campus, um, that that's concerning. That's concerning to me as a, as a faculty member and as an African-American faculty member. I understand that. But when you start talking about implicit biases and, you know, that someone who is 21 um, and over is not going to have the same rationale to be able to um, differentiate between someone being African-American, Muslim, or to be able to respond and act accordingly in an aggressive or a situation that requires them to be more assertive. I think that you need to maybe give them a little bit more credit. Well, the, the only thing I'll say is that in terms of, and I, and I keep relating it back to officers because that's what officers are trained to do. They're trained to assess. Um, they're trained to um, you know, make those snap judgment calls or trained to make those judgments in within the context of very serious, very dangerous situations. Um, there's certainly been a lot of talk about implicit biases as they pertain to officers and everyone in general. And that's why I'm, I'm not suggesting that somehow a 21 year old has an implicit bias that an officer doesn't or that somebody in the military doesn't. I think they're across the board. Um, me personally, my concern is that if you are African-American, Muslim, dark-skinned, if you if you want to kind of make it more broad, um, that the connotations, the sociological associations w with those negative characteristics might increase the likelihood of you being shot when you've done nothing. And we've seen that time and again by police officers that are trained to do so, that have years of ongoing training. And so somebody that's 22 that got their training and a year prior and have done nothing else with it um, and have never had any sort of active shooter training, for them to make that, at, that, that assessment, to be able to make that, um, that snap decision, that concerns me. All right, let me go to line two. Line two, Rob, you're on with Come and Talk It. What you got for us, Rob? <clears throat> Hi, how you doing, Mike? All Thanks right. for having me on the show. 
Uh, I just have a comment in, in response to what Dr. Bowman is saying. I actually tend to agree with, with, uh, with everything he's saying. And I do agree that, you know, these 21, 22 year olds on a college campus, you know, don't have that level of training and may not be able to make those sound judgments when it comes to, you know, use of deadly force. But also what I think is that, you know, it, it is the police responsibility to, you know, go and seek out those individuals and they're trained to, you know, clear rooms, you know, effectively as a tactical unit. And what I think is that a, you know, a campus carrier is not going to do that. The police run toward danger, but a campus carrier is going to run away from the danger and only pull out that gun if they're face to face with certain death. So this is all about a person's personal safety. This is about them trying to survive. <clears throat> and you're saying, hey, you know, why not give them the opportunity to survive? Their job is not to go out looking for danger and looking for the bad guy. Their job is to save their life and stop that person from trying to kill them. Right. The license, the license is not designed for that person to be a, a one-man armed security team trained to clear an entire building <laughs> in an active shooter scenario. That's the police job. You know, the, the campus carrier is, you know, trained to run away from the danger, you know, run, seek cover, seek shelter, hide, and then only pull that gun out when absolutely necessary to survive. It's, it's two completely different uh, ways of thinking. All right. So let me let me go back to Tori. And I, I, you have to pa- I apologize. I'm calling you by your first name. I'm doing that on purpose. Oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. So what are your thoughts? Oh, I kind of agree a little bit. Not a lot. Not a lot. Um, and I only say that because um, Rob makes a very uh, important point in that, you know, having a concealed carry on campus, right? Mm-hmm. does not mean that they're they're willing to uh, take on, clear out rooms, and do all this other good stuff. Um, and it is about personal safety. I do agree that it is about personal safety. Um, I think the question, kind of like what Dr. Bowman was talking about, was what happens when it, something does happen that is not about personal safety, mm-hmm. right? What are these um, 21 and 22-year-olds going to do when that does happen? Mm-hmm. Are they going to um, be balanced and be able to use implicit bias or not use it? Um, what's going to happen in that scenario? Um, so I, I, I'm kind of tinkering a little <laughs> bit here. I'm, like, I'm going a little bit 70-30 here, um, but I'm still going to say that uh, still in disagreement. Uh. Well, and I, and I think that, it, you know, we can trust these people, you know, the same people 21 and up to carry everywhere else in the state of Texas. Absolutely. Uh, we don't have any of those problems at all. You know, we have stats to go all the way back to 1995 mm-hmm. that back up the handgun license program. Mm-hmm. And we saying that, hey, these people here that the state of Texas actually gives a license to who have vetted these individuals mm-hmm. 21 and up. They can carry everywhere else. They can carry movie theaters, grocery stores, everywhere else in the state of Texas. There's no reason why they should not be able to carry a handgun in those same facilities located on the college campus. Absolutely. And, and my, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not anti-campus carry for that exact reason. It's, it's not, you know, my concern is not necessarily a, you know, and that's why there shouldn't be campus carry. It's more of a, this is an ancillary concern. 
you know um, and if and if they're you know if you're 21 22 and you're you know kind of I'm going to hide out and defend myself or I'm going to sit at the door I, you know I hear something outside the door and I'm, I'm going to sit at the door and I, you know everybody sit behind me I have a gun and you know I'm going to try and protect yeah. us and I'm, I'm good with that um, you know but the reality of it is and and I was an undergraduate at Arizona State and at a time when it was consistently the number one party school. You can grab any newspaper from a campus that has a police blotter and you'll understand exactly why I say that I would be concerned for the decision making of 21 and 22 year olds. Um, and I don't mean to generalize it. I'm not certainly not speaking to, um, you know, all 21 and 22 year olds. I was the uh, advisor for 10 years to the Lambda Alpha Epsilon criminal justice fraternity who were tremendously responsible young men and women um, who had you know, rain shooting is a regular part of their uh, fraternity agenda, uh, young men and young women. And so and I bet you every time they carried a firearm, they were actually very good citizens. They make they knew they were carrying that firearm. They want to make sure they were doing the right thing. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, a gun is not for everyone and everyone is not, you know, actually mentally capable of actually carrying a gun or even physically capable of carrying Mm -hmm. a gun. So it's not necessarily for everyone. Absolutely. But then. You know, we do have people that, hey, when they know that they're actually carrying a firearm, they know that, hey, I'm held to a much higher standard. Yes. So I need to make sure that I do the right thing here. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the only exception would be those that, and you know, uh, to to Rob's point, you know, the, the exception would be those that say, I'm going to go run towards danger, too. I want to be the hero. I'm going to run towards danger and try and fix this circumstance or something along those lines, because not only do they potentially put other people in jeopardy. Um, they, they certainly could resolve it, and I don't want to minimize that, but they could potentially put other people in, in harm's way, and they could potentially put themselves in harm's way. If, if campus police arrive as they're running away, you know, as that person is running away from them with a gun, now they're the suspect, you know, and if they are trying to argue or trying to, or not complying, then, you know, it, it has the potential to create a, a very bad scenario for that person. And we tell people in, in the handgun license course, you know, that if you're in a situation where you see a threat, you know, you see that shooter or whatever is going on, you pull that gun out, you stop that threat, you holster that gun, and then you start administering first aid. So by mm-hmm. the time the police actually show up, which is usually not within seconds, <laughs> yeah. by the time the police show up, you're actually going to need first aid from giving first aid. Yes. All right, but let me go to line one. Gabo. Gabo's at Texas State. Uh, I'm sorry, he's at uh, Texas Gunfest at the Texas Gunfest, Gabo. How's it going out there? So how was it out there at the Texas Gunfest? Hey, it was a blast, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Why you say uh, that? Did you did you get a, sh- a chance to shoot a lot of guns at Texas Gunfest? It was about five or six hours of nonstop shooting guns. You sound tired, um, Gabo. You sound just tired. I'm, I'm tired, but I'm satisfied. You, you, oh, so, uh, that says a lot track, coming from you. Yeah, tracking point. I finally got to shoot the tracking point, the, the auto-aiming rifle. How far? Um, what was the distance? They were only at 250, uh, but Bergara had a setup, and I've never shot at 500, and I hit two out of three. You didn't do a uh, mile away or anything? At the five, I did not get an opportunity to do that. Um, <laughs> I think I think 500 was about the max. Well, I think they might have had one set up for 1,000, but I got in the line for the 500, and I was impressed. Okay, what else um, did you shoot? STI had some beautiful guns out there. There are three guns. Uh, three-gun line is just amazing. It's so it, The gun really speaks for itself when you fire for it. 
Uh, let's see, Henry Repeating Arms is out there, which is some beautiful lever action guns. Nice. Um, uh, what else? The Silencer Shop had a ton of stuff. If, uh, I'd never got an opportunity to shoot suppressed. So for anybody that hasn't got an opportunity to shoot suppressed, I mean, almost every other booth had something suppressed. Uh, Silencer Shop had lots of stuff. So um, you, Capital you, Armory had some cool stuff, too. So you truly feel like an American today. <laughs> Oh man, it was great! It was great. You, I, I, I tried my hardest not to purchase anything, but I left with a uh, with a purchase from Caltech. Oh, they had that uh, sub two thousand. It had been on my list for a while. The price was right, and uh, the guys at Caltech, when they saw that I bought it, they gave me a bunch of magazines for free. So wow! Shout out to those guys, and uh, shout out to my good friend who who hooked me up with with getting into that show. So I'll be back out there next year for sure. And uh, it was just a good time for everybody. They had the uh, SWAT team competition. They had 10 SWAT teams competing against each other. I believe Wilco won. Oh, I stick around for all that, of it. That figures. Wils- Williamson County don't play. I told people, don't go up there play they, around they Williamson County. Well, you know, they will I'm, get I'm, you. <laughs> Do not truth, play man. with Williamson County. I'm telling you. The SWAT team I'm even won. <laughs> doing my best to get out of there. But uh, it was definitely worth going through Williamson County to uh, to get to the show. Yeah, I, I definitely get out of Wilco before dark. I head out. <laughs> I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm on my way heading south at five o'clock. Let me tell you. Yeah, I'm headed out of there too. But, uh, <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. At the speed limit. It was limit. a lot of fun. So at the speed limit, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that's awesome. So you got a chance to shoot a lot of different guns. You, it, it's a good experience. There weren't a lot of lines out there, from what I'm hearing. So you're able no, to. I don't think I waited more than five minutes at any any place. And a lot of the time, it would just walk right up and shoot whatever you want, and then walk right back in line. And or some of the places like at Silencer uh, Silencer Shop. I just started at one end, and they had about four or five tables set up with different stuff uh, from, you know, pistols to shotguns to uh, uh, AR platforms. You just go from one table to the next, and uh, nobody was being stingy with the ammo, so it was it was a really fun time. I tell you, if you guys don't get a chance uh, to go out to the Texas Gun Fest next year, uh, well, you need to try to get out there next year because it's it's a wonderful experience. You know, you get a chance to look at a lot of different guns from a lot of different manufacturers, and you get a chance to test fire all those guns as part of the price for getting into the festival. So it truly is a Texas Gun Fest. You know, it's it's not like a gun show. Uh, it's it's actually a festival. You go in, you you talk to the manufacturers, they tell you about the guns, and then you actually shoot all the guns and it's all part of the the cost for getting into the festival and then and gobble is and he sounds tired gobble is usually really hyper you know <laughs> he sounds all tired and all tuckered out and everything are you still driving oh no i'm, I'm pulled over right now but uh yeah no i'd say i shot at least a hundred dollars worth of ammunition today just by myself so it was, wow. it was well worth what the the cost of you know, admission is the only thing that could make it better is that they serve beer, but I understand why they don't. Oh, boy. It, it is Wilco. It is Wilco. <laughs> <laughs> don't even go there. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you, God. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you had a chance to have fun and, and you, you dug deep, you know, got, got into your, your man side there and, and got it all out of your system. Uh, yeah, I didn't get it all out, but yeah, you know, for a while. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. So have a good one. Take care. All righty. All right. So uh, uh, campus carry. We, we settled it. 
<laughs> I don't know. You got it settled? No, you don't have it settled. I don't know. I don't think it's settled. It's 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 implemented, so it's already been settled. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and wow. there are a lot of uh, you know, you have a some of your professors at the University of Texas that you know filed the lawsuit. It was dismissed. So I don't know what they're going to do with it now. But like I tell people, you know, hey, it's it's all over. We we've. We, we debated this for years. This is not something that just came about and it happened overnight. You know, this is something that we've been discussing uh, several sessions. Uh, so we're talking like three sessions. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, you know, six years. We've debated this back and forth, campus carry and, and, and how this was going to be implemented. And now, you know, hey, when session starts next year in 2017, I, I, I anticipate there's going to be some patchwork, you know, kind of cleaning up. Uh, some of the different laws. So, you know, we need to go back to the drawing table there and clean some things up. But yeah, I think I think it's a great idea. I'm glad it has been implemented. Uh, the the law is now in effect. So, hey, you know, just be safe out there. And I, and I have faith in the handgun license system. Uh, we've been doing this for so long here in Texas. Uh, it's proven to work. We've been doing it for over 20 years. So, yes, you know, I, I have faith that it is going to work. Uh, for sure. And I want to thank Dr. Scott Bowman for coming on to the show today. I want to thank um, uh, Tori Bowman, our psychotherapist. You know, we got to get her back into the shop um, here into the studio to talk about you know, some psychotherapy stuff. And I, I'm glad she is pro Second Amendment. And I, 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 sound, it, it, I hear a little conservatism, you know, That's there right. in the voice. 100%. So, yeah. So yeah, she's a, a fellow conservative. So, yeah, right. I'm loving that, too. So we definitely got to get you back in. All right, so Sandy Hook family suing Remington. Uh, so who is to blame when tragedies occur? How far does the trail of guilt stretch before you reach unjust vilification of an incident uh, of an innocent party? Now, family members of the children and educators killed at Sandy Hook tried to sue Remington Arms for its production of the AR-15 that was used in the massacre. Now, Judge Barbara Bellis of a superior court in Connecticut dismissed a lawsuit citing legislating uh, from 2005 that partially protects gun manufacturers from liability if their products are used in crimes. Now, legislation that even Barney Sanders voted for and defended recently. Now, it's been tried in the past and even just this year, family members of the victims in the Aurora mass shooting tried to sue Cinemark for damages. It's terrible to see how people are pushed so far from logic after such a devastation. It's impossible to understand how they feel without personal experience. But having a reason to be upset doesn't validate any and all pursuits you have. I'm truly sorry for everything you've had to go through. But please remember, more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law.